Bibles open there at 1 Kings 19. That's where we'll be focusing ourselves this morning. Well, one of the most clear lessons we've been taught, I think, in the past year of the world, uh, just sort of isolating ourselves over and over, is just how awful it is to be lonely. To be sure, some people like being on their own from time to time. But there's a difference between being on your own and being lonely. To be lonely is to feel as though there's no one there for you. That there is no one who cares, who takes the time to look out for you, or even just to take an interest in you. In the past year, I think there have probably been more people than ever before feeling loneliness. Maybe you've been one of them. Most likely, even if you haven't felt that way in the last year specifically, you probably have had that experience at some point. It's an awful feeling to be alone. But what a difference it makes to us when we discover that there is at least one person, or two or three, or four or ten, who care. That when you might be in the pits, there's someone wanting to talk to you, wanting to be with you, to provide you with comfort and support. In those times, knowing that actually you're not alone, that you have someone there for you, someone showing compassion towards you, seems to make for us all the difference in the world. In the first part of this series on the Transfiguration, we looked at the God whom Moses met on Mount Sinai during the Israelite exodus from Egypt. There we saw that God is holy, that God is gracious, And that God is glorious. All these things he revealed to Moses and through Moses to us. And those aspects of God give us the impression of a God who is uh, above and beyond us. Of a God who is indescribably good. Who cannot abide evil. But is willing to meet with us all the same to graciously give us a chance to uh, repent and receive his forgiveness for the wrongs that we've committed against him. But perhaps all of that may give us the impression of a God who is not just above and beyond us, but actually is also kind of remote and quite distant from us. We might say, you know, sure, uh, he was willing to come down to our level on this one occasion with Moses. He was uh, willing to literally grace humanity with his presence. Well, at least as much of his presence as any human could handle and live. And he was willing to graciously offer us his forgiveness and show some of his inherent glory to us. But none of those things necessarily make him close to us. 
none of that necessarily means that he's there for us personally. It's kind of like if you've got a good king, a great king even, who always makes the best uh, morally right decisions, who is just so you know, majestic and extraordinary to encounter. Uh, everyone bows down to him as he enters the room. And he even loves giving people second chances when he's sitting on his throne in his grand palace. For all those good things, this king would still be quite removed from his people, wouldn't he? He's not down in the trenches with his soldiers. He's not there in the day-to-day life of his people. And maybe that's how we see God. It's how some other religions see God. As fundamentally good, but distant and not really caring that much about the average person. About you and I in our day-to-day lives. Which is why it's so significant that in this passage from 1 Kings 19, we see that the God of the Exodus, who is above and beyond us, we see that he doesn't just come down once, but actually he shows us that he is always with us and that he guides us through his righteous plans for the world. So, what are we dealing with in this chapter? Well, we start with a bit of a dramatic scene. We discover Elijah fleeing from Queen Jezebel. She's very upset about Elijah putting to death all the false priests and prophets of the Baals, the idols that she and most of Israel were worshipping at the time. Uh, You can learn more about uh, exactly what happened there in the previous chapter, in 1 Kings 18. But the long and short of it is that there was a contest between Baal and God, between the prophets of the idols and a prophet of the one true God, to show whose God is the real God. And needless to say, the Lord God Almighty very clearly demonstrated that he and he alone is God. But rather than realising the error of her ways and repenting and deciding to follow God, as the Israelites did in the passage we looked at last time in Exodus, Jezebel instead sends a message to Elijah threatening to kill him as revenge for the deaths of the prophets of Baal. And we find later on from uh, Elijah's responses to God's questions in this passage that many of the prophets over the years had been killed by Israel, who were worshipping these false gods, including very many during the reign of Ahab and Jezebel. They didn't want to hear what God had told them through his prophets. They didn't want to hear the truth. So they would put these prophets of God to death. And now Elijah fears that he will end up like so many of his peers. And so he runs away. 
And you can't help but feel sorry for Elijah, right? You can't help but feel uh, empathy for his situation, how he clearly feels so lonely, so deserted, so isolated. As he says, he feels like he's the only one left following God. The whole world is against him. And so he's just given up. As he says in verse 4, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. Let me die, Lord. I give up. I don't want to do this anymore. There's nothing more I can do. It's the kind of thing we might expect to hear from someone in the grip of despair and loneliness. But this may also strike us as perhaps a little bit strange coming from the mouth of Elijah. Because surely if anyone should know God's power, God's control over everything, it would be the man who is arguably the greatest prophet of God in the Old Testament. He has just seen God do something incredible on Mount Carmel in his battle with the prophets of Baal. And yet now immediately afterwards, he's terrified and despairing and in anguish over his situation. And this is really a good reminder for us that any of us, all of us, can lose sight of God. We can all completely miss God's place in our lives because we're just so focused on the situation in front of us. For so many people in our world, how to get through their daily struggles is the only thing on their mind. And that might ring true for you. God doesn't even come into the equation. God's ability to help and to comfort in a myriad of ways, directly and indirectly, might not even cross our minds. If someone like Elijah can start thinking that way so quickly, then how can any of us think that we'd be any different? As a church, uh, we've this year adopted a new vision statement, uh, which is our way of citing publicly what kind of community we want to be. And the statement says we want to learn Jesus, lead others towards Jesus, and love like Jesus. Love others like God loves us. And look here at the love we see God demonstrate at the compassion that he has for one of his people who is in the pits, who is just despairing. God doesn't say, oh, silly Elijah, how could you possibly forget what I can do? He doesn't dismiss him. He doesn't tell him off. He simply comes alongside Elijah to help him and to guide him. God is there for this lonely man through the angel of the Lord. 
You may or may not recall from last time that the angel of the Lord is a character we see appear repeatedly across the Old Testament. Every appearance of this angel is the same person. And while it isn't 100% clear who this person is specifically, what we do know for certain, because he says so time and again, is that the angel of the Lord is most certainly God himself. Whether that's uh, as God the Son before his incarnation as Jesus, or whether it's in some other way. Whatever the case is, what we have in this passage is God immediately, personally, responding to Elijah's need. Elijah, in his despair, asks for his life to be taken away from him, in verse 4. And then the very next verse, it says, All at once, an angel, which we then find out is the angel of the Lord, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. And when he looks up, there's freshly baked bread and water right there for him, in the middle of this desert, this place that he has gone to specifically to die alone. He sent his servant away, he's away from all civilization. Suddenly, in this place, he has received nourishment from God. God has come to him personally to give Elijah what he needs to carry out his mission once more. And then Elijah falls asleep again. So God does it again, patiently waking him, giving him more nourishment, saying, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. And up Elijah gets and sets off on his journey with all the energy he needs. Isn't that an amazing turnaround? On his own, in despair, Elijah can think of nothing better for himself than to just go and die all alone. And then God shows his compassion by giving Elijah the strength to carry on. And just on that, uh, if you've been sort of around church circles, you may have heard it said, or perhaps you've even said it yourself, uh, the phrase, God won't give you more than you can handle. I think we can see just from this passage that when it comes to life circumstances, that idea simply isn't true to the Bible. Elijah is given a situation here that he cannot handle. He does not have the strength on his own to deal with this threat from Jezebel. But, nor did he have the strength on his own to prove the prophets of Baal wrong in the previous chapter. It is always, whether times are good or bad, it is always God who is providing us with what we need to get through any given situation. All we need is to ask him to do so and trust that he will listen. And what we need might not be what we expect or even what we ask for. 
It certainly wasn't what Elijah asked for. But if we trust that God is really good, as we thought about last time, then we can also trust that whatever plan he has for us, whatever direction he moves us in, is for our good and is better than whatever we had in mind for ourselves. He didn't let Elijah die, as Elijah had asked, and he didn't just help Elijah get his strength back and then leave him to his own devices, like, you know, sorry, this is as far as I take you. No. In fact, here we see God show us, quite literally for Elijah, what it is he wants us to do. Because he directs Elijah to himself. Elijah, who had forgotten about everything that God is and everything he can do because he was consumed by his immediate worries, Elijah is directed by God to focus back on God. To go to the mountain of God, Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai, the same mountain where Moses had met with God hundreds of years before. I doubt Elijah uh, would have been expecting to travel 40 days and nights by the strength that God had provided, but he did. And I also doubt that Elijah was expecting to meet God in the way that he did on the mountain. Elijah, as he went up the mount, would have recalled uh, the God that Moses met and may well have been expecting a similar encounter, an encounter where God appears in power and might and glory. And after God tells him to go to the top of the mountain in a similar way to how Moses was told to in Exodus, we then see three uh, natural events that God uses to appear elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, For example, in Job, he speaks in a whirlwind to Job. In Exodus, his uh, arrival on this very mountain is announced with an earthquake. And to Moses himself, he had earlier spoken through the fire in the burning bush, somewhere on this very mountain. Elijah would have known all this. He may well have been expecting to encounter something similar. He may have been waiting for God to act dramatically, as he had done with the prophets of Baal. But in this earth, wind and fire, we don't find a boogie wonderland, and nor do we find God. Instead, After these events, there is a gentle whisper. It's also translated uh, as a small and still voice. And there, there is God, asking after Elijah, asking what he's been doing. And this conveys, again, God's Closeness, 
that God is near. It conveys an intimacy that God has with his people. You know, you can't whisper to someone at a distance. You can't speak with a small voice to someone on the other side of a crowded room. You have to be close by them. And God is always close. He's always near. He's always with us. He isn't just present in dramatic or powerful events. He is always at work, whatever form his work may take. He will reveal himself to us however he wishes to, in accordance to what he tells us about himself in the scriptures. He was there by Elijah's side as the angel of the Lord, and now he's here as the God speaking closely to him. And for us, he is ultimately, in addition to all that, the God who came to earth in the form of a man, Jesus, who lived a life like ours and died a death like ours, and after his, resur- after his resurrection ascended into heaven where he reigns over all things. He knows our weaknesses and our struggles and our pains as only one who has experienced the same things can know them. And he chose to experience that so that he could show us even more compassion and even more love and through that love also fulfill his sovereign plan for all creation, which we'll look at next time. And so after God hears Elijah out, gives him twice the opportunity to just spill his guts, speak what's on his mind, not because God doesn't already know, but because he wants Elijah to realise that He is interested in Elijah's life. He wants Elijah to know that he, the Lord God, cares for him and listens to him and provides for him and protects him. And God then goes from showing his compassion to further showing his sovereignty and demonstrating his righteousness. This whole episode ends almost uh, abruptly with God very clearly declaring exactly what is going to happen next. He already knows, he's already determined what will happen from this point onwards. The wicked and weak king of Israel, Ahab, will be replaced by Jehu. And there will be a new king in Aram as well, which was one of the neighbours of Israel. And Elijah himself will be replaced in his ministry by Elisha. All of these things we see happen across the following chapters of 1 and 2 Kings, beginning with the call of Elisha in the verses directly after our passage. This alone is a clear reminder that God is in control. God's plans and actions go well beyond what we are capable of seeing or knowing. And what a greater comfort that makes his presence 
He knows not just what you and I need right now, but also what you and I will need for all of time. And he is willing and able to compassionately provide for us accordingly. But these decrees also show how God, as the good God, cannot let sin go unpunished. And in this moment, he chooses to actively pass judgment on those who have, from their positions of leadership, turned people away from God to follow false gods, to engage in evil practices. Uh, The reign of Ahab and Jezebel was well known uh, for the wickedness that took place in Israel during it. And uh, this may also remind us of what God told us about himself back in the Exodus passage we looked at last time. Uh, As he comes forward declaring his name to Moses, he says that he is both the God who has compassion on whom he will have compassion, which also shows his sovereignty because he and he alone decides what he will do. And also that he is the God who does not leave the guilty unpunished. And again, ultimately, this will reach its final greatest fulfilment with Jesus' return, when the whole world will be judged according to God's Righteous decree. But God finishes this episode here with one last reminder to Elijah and to us after he's declared what will happen with the kings and with Elijah himself. He gives his final sovereign righteous decree that I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all those who have not bowed down to Baal. Remember, part of uh, Elijah's cry is that he feels he's the only one left. He feels that there are no other followers of the true God in Israel. His ministry is pointless. He might as well just give up. But again, he's forgotten God's provision. This time in the provision of his brothers and sisters following the Lord. In the previous chapter, he even meets one of them called Obadiah, who is, we're told, a devout follower who had helped a hundred of the Lord's prophets uh, hide away while Jezebel was out trying to have them killed. So God reminds Elijah that it isn't just God with him personally, God has also provided him with others around him, others he can be in community with and worship God together with and bear each other's loads just as Obadiah had done. And it's the same for us. That is what we as a church are called to. Not just loving each other like God does, coming alongside each other and helping bear each other's burdens. 
but also doing as God has done here in leading each other towards Jesus, towards God. And in learning Jesus, learning God together, just as Elijah has learnt God here. This is not to say that uh, we'll always get it right, that we can perfectly comfort and guide and teach others in the way that God can. But it is to say that God can use us to provide for his people. And that we should seek to come alongside each other as he has done for us. When we learn about him from his word, when we learn about his holiness and grace and glory and compassion and sovereignty and righteousness, it is so that we can praise him and so that we can seek to imitate his goodness so that he can be worshipped and glorified and so that we can enjoy that goodness in community with each other. Praise be to the compassionate and sovereign and righteous God who offers to save us from lonely despair, who knows what we need and where we're going and guides us and is near to us Uh, as he works out his good plans and who promises justice and goodness for us to enjoy for all eternity. I'd like to leave uh, the opportunity to pray to God, to worship him for all he is uh, to you to do uh, once we finish here. And when you do that, ask that he would show himself all the more to each of us in our lives. So with that, I'd like to leave you with these words from 2 Corinthians 